walking through this uh, series that's going to lead us into the summer and walk us through the summer. And then we're going to walk, you know, we're going to be able to hear from different people who are going to hear their own take on who they would say is a hero in their faith. And it's primarily going to be from the Older Testament. And in my own life, it'd be from the beginning of my own faith journey that I have to say there is one person that in particular I've often gone to for encouragement and inspiration, um, even a reminder of the reality of the soberness of life. And that person would be David. And so every time that I'm going to be able to share here, the privilege, um, I'm hoping, Lord willing, I'll be able to share from different pockets, different segments of his life. But David, David would be the man who become King David. And in my opinion, his life is nothing short of legendary. Uh, David was a man who was covered in such a wide expanse in First and Second Samuel in the Older Testament that, um, you know, he's known, he's demonstrated to be a poet. He's demonstrated to be a musician, uh, a warrior who showed invincible confidence in the battlefield. He had a tender, sensitive side to him. He had a courageous, fierce side to him. He was uh, a loyal friend. Until the end, he tasted in his own life a wide range of experiences. He had the highest of moments in his own life, and he had the depths of tragedy and uh, failure. He tasted disappointment, the bitterness of it, and it lingered in his life in his later years. He has a scope that I think gives us access to be able to not just see what it looks like for a man to step into situations heroically, but also... I'm hoping for something of what it might look like for God to frame a person, mold and shape, and maybe even how he may be wanting to do that in our own lives. And so this is, this is the person we're, we're going to explore together. And if, if David, who now, by the way, you may even think of different episodes in his life, you may know already, but he is now regarded arguably the greatest king Israel ever had. If he ended there, he certainly didn't start there. He actually started in a rather auspicious place. He was in an obscure um, place in his life. He was, if we could put it this way, an unlikely candidate. And it's that episode, that introduction, that I'd like us to take a look at and like us to walk through. And I'm hoping God would have something to say to us. And so if you wouldn't mind just opening up your handout, we'll step into this together in Samuel, 1 Samuel 16. And we're told in verse 1 that says, Now the Lord said to Samuel, You have mourned long enough for Saul. I have rejected him as king of Israel, so fill your flask with olive oil and go to Bethlehem. Find a man named Jesse who lives there, for I have selected one of his sons to be my king. But Samuel asked, How can I do that? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. Take a heifer with you, the Lord replied, and say that you have come to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you which of his sons to anoint for me. This narrative actually picks up, in a, in, it's intertwined in a moment, a tenuous moment in Israel's history. If we could put it this way, it is a moment that is filled with drama, tension, and risk. See, what we are introduced to is a man named Samuel, and some of us may or may not know who he is, but Samuel was a man who filled and occupied an office known as judge. Israel, up until that point, for several hundred years, was, was led by people who God would raise up, men and women, 
God would raise up to deliver Israel from the grasp of their enemies. And on the passing of this judge, this leader that God would raise up, the, land, the, the nation of Israel who would unite under such a leader would then scatter and end up living according to what they thought was best in their own eyes. And there's an entire book in the Old Testament named Judges, which documents all the different people who occupy this office. But Samuel wasn't just that. He was critical because he occupied this office from his youth, from his younger years in his life. And towards the end of his life, God said, you know what? We're going to transition the governmental system Israel is under, and we're going to transition it into a monarchy. And what we're going to do is he told Samuel, I want you to choose a king. And he directed him. And he did. He installed Israel's first king. In that transition of power, we can... We can say it was tenuous at best. It was a new way of identifying as a nation. And this king, unfortunately, named Saul, who's the second person we're introduced to here, he ends up failing miserably. We know he fails to such an extent that God decides, I'm going to replace this king. We're done with Saul. And that news that Samuel receives, and this is just good for us to be aware of, given the situation we're about to be able to experience here together. But he, he, he ends up hearing this. And it says that Samuel ends up dropping, this godly man ends up dropping into a state of mourning. Why? Well, because Samuel, we get the sense, had personally invested into Saul. And if he was able to, if you could hear it this way, Saul's success, well, it would be Samuel's success. Because if Saul was able to succeed and secure the kingdom of Israel, what would happen is in his later years, Samuel would be able to rest easy knowing that everything he had invested his life into would continue. It would be transferred to the next generation. And on the same token, Saul's failure, well, it would mean it would call into question Samuel's ability to succeed. His own life investment, if it cannot proceed without him, well, that's nothing short of depressing call his decision-making into question. And he's sitting there, and it's in this situation that we find him. And he says, you have mourned long enough for Saul. I have rejected him as king of Israel, so fill your flask with olive oil. Go to Bethlehem, which is the southern area of Israel, a, a region right next to, close to Jerusalem. And he says, find a man named Jesse who lives there, for I have selected one of his sons to be my king. I have already named a replacement. And one of his sons, Jesse, this family, I want you to go there and I will show you which son will be the king. And as Samuel is hearing this, you could see it. Samuel is actually recognizing the amount of risk God is asking him to take. Because if Samuel was to publicly proclaim that there is a new king for the land of Israel while the current king is sitting on the throne, well, it wouldn't be the wisest decision, Right? Because if we could think the transference of power or the threat of power of that high level, it doesn't happen peacefully. Which is, by the way, whenever it does happen, there is such a feeling of rarity and celebration when it does occur. It would call into question his own ability to live. He says, God, do you know what you're asking me to do? If I were to say there is a new king, what's to stop Saul from killing me? Do you really want me to do this? And look at how God responds. I don't know about, I find this interesting. It's almost as if God says to Samuel, huh, you know, you might be right. 
He might be right. What does he say? He says, um, okay, take a heifer with you then, the Lord replied, and say that you have come to make a sacrifice to the Lord. What is he doing? Use me as your cover. It's fascinating. It's, all, it's like God is saying, you know what? He decides to work within the system, work within the dynamics Samuel finds himself in. He's like, yeah, you might be honest something. He would. We know him. We know him to be extremely selfish in his ambition. We know him to be not aligned with what I want to do. We know him. He is not, he doesn't have any qualms about destroying or putting apart anyone that would threaten him. And we see this play out, particularly in David's life. So, so here's what we get. Take a heifer, a female calf, a young female calf. Take a heifer with you. We'll go to Bethlehem. And I, what does he say? He says, I want you to get, make a sacrifice. Use that. Put, make a sacrifice. Have a feast. Let everyone enjoy it. And under, when everyone's attention is on this festivity and on the celebration, the real reason why you're there will emerge. It says, then I want you to invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you which of his sons to anoint for me, which is a particular word, anoint. It's not a word we use today, right? We don't speak of anointing things uh, very often. But if we could hear it this way, anointing is actually to anoint something is a term that Samuel and anyone in the ancient Near East would be familiar with. It was not directly only a religious term. It was something that would denote. To anoint somebody was something that was used to denote um, a separation into an office, and it would confer authority over that individual. It would be, you are separated for this task or this office. It was also used, if we could think of it this way, anointing oil was used to ratify and solemnize commitment in diplomatic relations, business dealings. It would be there in a nuptial ceremony. There would be this understanding. There was an anointing that would happen to both. The oil would, would flow through them. It would be an agreement solemnized what just happened. Or even if you could, when slaves were set free, they would be anointed as free people. I want you to use this cultural identification and I want you to set apart a man who will be the next king of Israel. And so he does. He says in verse 4, Samuel did as the Lord instructed, and when he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town came trembling to meet him. What's wrong? They, they asked. Do you, have, do, do you come in peace? Yes, Samuel replied. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Purify yourselves, prepare yourselves, and come with me to the sacrifice. And then Samuel performed the purification rite for Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice too. We, we get a picture in terms of the amount of clout, authority, power Samuel had in the land of Israel. A, an official of this rank, of this gravity, entering unannounced, it caused the town leaders to, to step forward in trepidation. What are you doing? Why are you here? right? It would be equal to us seeing or the leaders of our land seeing a high official of the highest order coming in unannounced. It would be, it would be what's going on here? What, why? Because the amount of power Samuel carried would able to cast down judgment. It would be able to um, either take or give, especially in the name of Saul. They knew what kind of king they had. What are you doing here? They, they, you sense the reverence and the fear all at the same time. And he uses the line God tells him to use. He says, well, um, I've come in peace. It's okay. See this effort? 
I want to sacrifice to God. I'm here to honor God in your midst. You are? Yes. Well, that's great. That's the sense. So, yeah, so you leaders, go ahead and invite the people that you deem important, the distinguished members of society, the influential power brokers, invite them. We're having a feast. We're having, yes, we're having a feast. And you get, there's momentum that is now picking up. Everyone starts rallying around. They start preparing themselves for the sacrifice. And, and as this is happening, he, Samuel makes his way over, finds out who Jesse is, presumably would be understood as a member of society that was able to be influential. And he finds Jesse and he tells him. He doesn't tell him specifics, but you get the sense he tells him, one of your sons is going to be occupying an office. And then he personally does the purification ceremony. He does something that they would identify as a religious cleansing to prepare to worship God. And, and then he goes. And we could imagine it in our mind's eye. He would come. He would sacrifice the, the, the young calf. They would cook the calf. They would create a feast. People would come around. Music would be playing. There would be dancing. There would be joy and celebration. And in the midst of this, Jesse and his sons arrive, and we're told in verse 6 that when they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab, and he thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. And then he says words that are worth pondering. He says, the Lord doesn't see things the way you see them, Samuel. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Samuel wasn't aware of who this person was. He wasn't told exactly who this man would be, who would occupy this office. And so as Jesse makes his way in and the sons are coming, Eliab would be presumably the eldest in that culture. That would be the first in line for such a, a privilege and authority. And he looks at him and he says, well, this was easy. This is him. He must have had a stature and appearance, maybe a glimmer of uh, he had a glimmer of regality, of authority. His presence must have compelled Samuel. This elderly sage in the later years of his life is thinking to himself, well, here he is. I am looking at the next king of Israel. And in the midst of that, before he vocalizes anything, he's thinking this. God speaks to him and says, no, 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 Samuel, there's a, there's a lesson I want you to learn. Perhaps that's why he was unaware of who this next king would be. In his last remaining stages, God wanted to teach him one thing. Listen, don't be confused. Don't get so caught up in how things look, how people look, the, the appearance, the, the stature, the appeal of attractiveness, the presence may not be everything that qualifies somebody. No, 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 no. You and everyone else, people, all of us get consumed with the externals of life. And what is he saying? He says, but I don't get fooled by those things. Those things don't actually, honestly, at the end of the day, I see right through them. And I see who a person is. I see their heart. Which to you and I, may mean different things, but in their day and age, it would mean what the heart was what? It was the seat of emotions. It was the seat of will and motivations. It was the seat of reason and conscience. What is he saying? He's saying, I could see the essence of this person. And Samuel, what I see is not fit for a king. 
Not disqualified from everything, just not this office. Samuel looks at Jesse and says, not, it's not him. So Jesse then, verse 8, Jesse told his son Abinadab to step forward and walk in front of Samuel to be examined, considered. But Samuel said, this is not the one the Lord has chosen. Proceed. Next, Jesse summoned Shimei. But Samuel said, neither is, is this the one the Lord has chosen. In the same way, all seven of Jesse's sons were presented to Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. The narration of this starts out with the rejection of the king who is sitting on the throne. And it starts out with saying, he is no longer fit to be king. I want you to create this elaborate cover to be able to identify the next king. And Samuel goes, he goes to Jesse's house and the seven, the seven sons walk each one three more times. It's not the first, it's not the second, it's not the third. They're, they are not fit to be king. They go through all seven sons. And by the end, you sense the palatable tension, the frustration building, the angst within Samuel. Is, is there no one to occupy the office? Who will lead Israel into the future? Is there no one fit to be king? You could sense, you could sense the mild fear underneath Samuel. Wondering what's going on and knowing God didn't send me here for nothing. He ends up saying, well, there's only one possible, one possibility. Why? Because the entire event, the entire story, if you could hear it this way, in a way, all of Israel is waiting, waiting for the next king. They're waiting for the unnamed man, the nobody, nobody knows yet. The man we know, they're waiting for David. Samuel looks at Jesse and he says, well, there's only one option. Samuel asked in verse 11, double checking, are these all the sons you have? God said one of them would be king. Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest. Um, Jesse replied, he, but he's out in the fields watching the sheep and goats. I mean, he's not here. Send for him at once, Samuel said. We will not sit down to eat until he arrives. The youngest in that culture would what, have no position, no authority, no standing, no favor, have no ability, no one to vouch for, no champion. His own father did not deem him worthy of participating in this dignitary's feast. Think about it. Overlooked, forgotten. Where is he? You, do you have? Yes, I do. I, but he's kind of, he's the youngest. He didn't even, no confidence behind him. And it's in that situation that David, unknown, we, he's unnamed up to this point. He's the youngest. He's out in the fields and Samuel, recognizing what's going on here, recognizing what has happened, the cultural setting is that the eldest has the opportunity and the privilege. The youngest, well, honestly, he gets leftovers and the majority of the time, that's nothing. No, 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 no. No, no, God said one of your sons and he's the only one left. And so you know what? Stop everything. Stop, 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 stop everything. Stop it. Everything here in this home. No more eating. No, no more. None of us are doing anything until you get him and bring him here now. But you think of it. 
The one who was overlooked, who was forgotten, the one who is, is in obscurity, who was his own family, honestly, at the end of the day, didn't think it valuable to even allow him to participate in such a privilege, is the one that Samuel says, we will wait for him and we will do nothing until he comes. Such an unlikely candidate he was in his family's eyes, but not in God's. And you, it's not like he was in the backyard. Hey, David, David, right? He was, where was he? He was in the fields taking care of sheep and, and goats. He was out who knows where, roaming the lands, taking care of them near Bethlehem. And so you, you hear, you imagine there's a runner that summons and said, listen, you need to go find David. You need to get him back here as fast as possible. And you, you almost see the runner making his way out in the field, seeing where the sheep and goats. He finds out, oh, that's David. He goes up to David. He's, David, listen, um, we need you back home. What? Yeah, yeah, Samuel's here. Samuel's here. Yeah, Sam, the judge? Yeah, the judge is, what? What? What's going on? He's here. He has a feast. There's a feast going on? Yeah, there's a feast going on. And you know what? He stopped everything. He wants you. He's summoning you. Me? Right? Yeah, you. He wants you to come. He, your dad is waiting. Your brothers are waiting. No, the celebration in the house has stopped. Everyone's waiting for you. You have to hurry. Why me? I'm the eighth brother. You. He wants to choose somebody for an office. He thinks it's me. He thinks you might be the person. What's going on here? I don't, you got to, my sheep and, well, you got to delegate. You got to take care of the caretakers. Take, you got to go. And you could sense it, right? You could hear it. You could feel it. David, right, we're kind of, we're taking some liberality. But, I mean, you get the sense that there is some rush. There's some angst. He's making his way. He's most likely sweating from the run. He gets there. He arrives. He sees. He hears the music in the town square. He sees the feast going on. He comes to father's house. He, he notices what's going on here. They're all dressed for an event. They're all at their best. He's in his shepherd's garb, sweaty, dirty, most likely doesn't smell the best. <laughs> he enters, he sees Samuel, the man highly revered, man of highest rank, second to the king. And he steps in. And we're told that Jesse sent for him. Verse 12, he was Dark and handsome with beautiful eyes, which is ironic. This, moments ago, we're told, God told him, don't get caught up in the externals. And the narrator was like, I can't help it. I mean, David, he's dark, handsome. I mean, his eyes, they're beautiful. Uh, that's like, it's, it's interesting that, you know, it's like they had to put that in there. And, and the Lord... And as, as David is standing there, right, not in his best, and he's sitting there, and what happens? The Lord said, this is the one. Anoint him. Samuel, this is the one. So David stood there among his brothers. Samuel took the flask of olive oil he had brought and anointed David with the oil. And the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. And then Samuel returned to Ramah. His assignment being fulfilled, he feast is just a cover anyway. He moves on and we get the sense David is sitting there somewhat in shock, somewhat confused, not told, by the way, no one outside of Samuel knows what that is for. 
You're the one. God has chosen you. Come here. His brothers are watching. His father's watching. Perhaps with some embarrassment. Come here. He anoints him. Oil runs over him. We don't know how it's manifested, but something of God's spirit rushes upon David in a way that empowers him for the role he is going to occupy, and it stays with him for the rest of his life. It ends up shaping who he becomes. Deed is done. Samuel leaves. This man, this, this man. See, God, God, we... Others may have not seen certain qualities about David, but God did. God saw certain things because here's what we're given, a little bit of insight into who this man was. See, before this happens, there are some episodes that occur. One in particular that happens when Samuel tells Saul, God has taken the kingdom away from you, but he will replace him with a certain kind of individual. And I asked him to put this up there. He says, listen, he says, but now your kingdom must end. This is Samuel talking to Saul. For the Lord has sought out what? A man after his own heart. That is who will replace you. The Lord has appointed him to be the leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. But this man, no, he's different. He, what does that mean? A man after God's own heart? What is that? He was sensitive to the things of God. That when God moved on him, spoke to him, he stopped, he listened. He did not disregard it, not treat it lightly. If anything, David was sensitive to God's presence. That, that would be a defining factor in David's life. By the way, this term, he's a man after his own heart, after God's own heart, is used only of David in all of the scriptures. Even with his flaws, even with his weaknesses, even with his failure, he is the man who pursued God, was sensitive to him, but he wasn't just sensitive. His multi-layer complexity shows that he was also courageous, tenacious, committed to his responsibilities. Later, on the eve before he will step onto the national stage and slay the giant named Goliath, Saul, the king, interviews him and says, what makes you think you, a shepherd boy, can overcome this man, a warrior, who's been a warrior since your age? And he says this. One of my personal favorite verses David demonstrating something. He says, David persisted. I have been taking care of my father's sheep and goats. These menial tasks that others don't regard, but I think they're important. He says, when a lion or a bear comes and steals a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and rescue the lamb from its mouth. And if the animal turns on me, it is in trouble. <laughs> I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. The sensitive man, sensitive to God, had integrity. Who was watching? Nobody. Who I honestly would notice? Nobody. Who, who, would, who would be there to witness the event? Nobody. And yet, I was faithful in the little, he says. And as I was faithful in the little, when no one was watching, you know what? God delivered me, he says later. God delivered me from them. He was helping me tenaciously keep my commitment. And he did it in private when no one else watched. He will do it in public when all the eyes are on me. He will help me slay this giant. He will do it. He had integrity. He was faithful, committed tenaciously to his task. This David, this is, this, this is the hero that would become arguably the greatest king Israel had. Flaws, weaknesses, tragedies, disappointments. But in our remaining moments, I'm hoping that we can glean at just a couple things of maybe how God formed such a person. 
how God involved himself in David's life. It didn't just happen. It was not accidental. It was highly intentional. And I'd like to suggest that God works, this shows us, this reminds us that God works in the lonely places and the everyday responsibilities of our lives. That it is there. It is in the lonely places. It was in the lonely place that God formed David's heart. And David became sensitive to God. He, I have no one else out here. It's just you and me. The solitude is what created space for him to approach and get to know the one who called him. This, this, is in, this is important for you and I. Why? Because we may face days, we may face weeks, we may face months, entire seasons where we would be able to, if we could say it this way, no one is able to understand what I am walking through. I'm alone in this. And we may be surrounded by others. We may actually share with others and yet truly nobody is in my shoes. I'm alone. And in the solitude is where we, guess what? That is where God actually is a lot closer than we may imagine. That is actually where we might be on the precipice of discovering a larger degree of intimacy with the one who comforts, the one who strengthens, the one who speaks, the one who says, no, you are not alone. I am with you. You have been overseen, forgotten. No one regards you, but I have never done that. I have been aware of you. It's there that God works. It's there in the lonely places, in the lonely places. And it's not just there. It's in the everyday responsibilities, the places we might think are seemingly insignificant. No one really cares if we do or don't do this. Credit is not given. Credit. Not, I mean, it just never comes our way. It, would, would everyone notice if we do this? And it's there, actually, if we could hear it this way, where no one else is watching that it's almost as if God is saying, good, no distractions. Now you and I work. And we discover the amazing principle Jesus said, faithful in little, faithful in much. It's there. Let's prepare. Let's prepare for the entrustment that might come your way in the future. You don't know. We have no idea. Let's prepare. Let's not take this lightly. Let's take these tasks that maybe nobody else is aware of, and let's do the best we can together in this. That, that's where God forms who we are. That is how he creates the hero that one day will be exposed to everyone else. But you know what? God is the one who takes credit. He has been doing it. All we need to do is invite him in. Allow him. Because secondly, listen, it, it, it is not, it, 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 if we could hear it this way, God's calling is an invitation to a journey. It is not a destination. Think about how long it took us to get to David. There was this entire event, this ceremony, all of this activity to do what? To get David to his starting line. A starting line. And so many times in our own lives, there, we may battle and work hard just to get to our place where we say, okay, God, I'm open. Okay, God, I, I hear you. I will, I will respond to you. And we think we might make the mistake. We're set. But actually, we're just beginning. David wasn't king the next day. He wasn't king in a month, in a year. It was years before David, who was anointed, would sit and be the king. Why? Because God, in the journey, 
develops us into the men and women we're supposed to become to occupy the assignment he has put on our lives. It is in the journey that he decides to form who we are when no one else is watching, in obscurity, in the tension, in the struggle, in the frustration, in the disappointment, in the delayed dream is where he prepares us. Why? Because we have seen it all around us. Talent and gift, if it's allowed to succeed prematurely, it ends up what? Crushing and hurting the person that has underdeveloped qualities. And God loves us too much. He does. He loves us too much to speed past the journey. He says, no, I'm calling you, yes, but this is a journey. It is not a point of arrival. Let's, let's focus. Let's slow down. Let's allow him to work in us what he wants to. Let's, let's give him patience because God, he is so patient with us. He is so steadfast and loving. He never gives up. He picks us up when we fail. And let us be careful to not become discouraged when the dream deposited within the desire is delayed. Delay is not denial. Delay is preparation. Because lastly, what this shows us is that God doesn't just concern himself with the people we are, but he, listen, if you could think of it this way, God delights to call others may never notice. God delights to call those others may never notice. This is... Uh, this is, in my opinion, one of the most inspiring pieces. This we know David as the famous giant slayer, king of Israel. But you know what? He was an unlikely candidate. No one thought, no one saw that coming. No one, least of all David. But God had a different plan for his life. And it's almost as if God says, I delight in using who? The, the humble the meek, the lowly, those others disregard, it's, it's like magnetic. God can't help but be drawn to those. And in years later, one who would be named the ultimate king of Israel, the son of David, Jesus himself would do what? He would step onto the scene. And who would he go to? He would go to those who would say, the others had deemed unworthy and disqualified. And it's those people that others, the religious elite would say, nope, not a chance. That Jesus would say, think again. I'm calling you. God's on the move. And we got to be careful not to disqualify yourself. Because if God is asking you, impulsing you, drawing you, compelling you into a relationship, into an assignment, into a path, guess what? He delights in doing that. That is the place where we get to then step into a place of what? Not saying, whoa, look at me, but saying, wow, God, you you have done this. What an amazing thing you have done. May you receive all the credit. And guess what? His spirit, in the same way it goes upon David, it, the privilege, because of what Jesus did, is that his spirit is able to fall upon us, is able to strengthen us and illuminate, ignite our soul to become fully alive. It is there that we discover what life tastes like. It is there that we discover, this is why I've been made. This is why I've been given the skills, the qualities. This is why perhaps even certain points of pain are being used in my own life for other people's good. This is, he delights. He del his pleasure flows through the ones, others. He calls those others may say, not a chance. Is none of us beyond his reach. Not one. 
None of us, none of us, truly at the end of the day, with God, are unlikely candidates. He calls anyone who would respond. Anyone who would venture forth. May the Lord do that. May we sense his voice speaking. May we step forward courageously. May we allow him to form us in the journey. May we invite him in the lonely places, in the everyday tasks. And may he create you and I into the heroes he wants us to be. May this be the case. In a moment, we're going to have the, t- the band come back up and close in a final song. We'll receive our time of giving. And the song is meant to remind us that at the end of the day, our life is found fully exposed and ignited when we sign up and align with what God is calling us into. There and there alone. So why don't we pray, ask for his blessing. Perhaps you may want to underline some things. We'll enjoy this together. Lord, I just, um, we thank you. We thank you that you, you purposely choose to pursue the meek and the lowly, the humble. Those of us who um, may have in some way, shape, or form feel forgotten, we may even have disqualified ourselves or perhaps we may have the spotlight on us and we think, everyone thinks we're the one and yet you are the one who chooses. You're the one who equips you qualify. You are the one who gives us the privilege and opportunity to experience life at the fullest. And so we pray, God, in the same way you anointed David. I ask, God, that you would do so with your spirit. Is any of us that hear your voice, give us the courage to receive your empowering presence. Give us the ability to allow you to work in the lonely places, in the journey, Mold us and shape us, God. Who knows, perhaps you may want to raise up leaders, heroes within our midst. Maybe we are the ones you're calling. May it be so. We pray for this. We ask for your blessing. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.